Hey, it's Sarah. The NFL regular season is hitting the home stretch, and you should all check out the Mina Kimes Show featuring Lenny. Mina blends incisive analysis with a biting wit and makes for a fun and informative pod. You can find the Mina Kimes Show featuring Lenny wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. My name is Celine Gounder, and my dilemma is finding time to exercise ever since the start of the pandemic. Okay, so, I mean, the important thing first is that you remember that when you're exercising, you're not selfish or you're not choosing yourself over your work, husband, dogs, etc., It is a choice to prioritize yourself, but you're making yourself better and healthier and more mentally healthy. So when you get back to your work, husbands, dogs, et cetera, you're sharper and you have more energy and you feel better. So getting past that guilt of carving out time just for yourself is the first part. The second, of course, is doing it when you're not in the mood to work out or forcing yourself to put it on a busy schedule. And I have a solution for that. So I've been creating these month long challenges, almost like bingo boards. And there's a certain number of boxes on it, and there's some for yoga and Pilates and arm workouts and walks and other exercise classes. And then I throw in some other stuff like meditation or reading or other things that I have trouble making time for. So you get the satisfaction of checking things off, and you get the planning that's sort of required when you sit down to figure out how you're going to fit them all in and which days you can do what. And then you have accountability because you can post the updated checked off boxes every day on social media or maybe email with a friend that keeps you honest and wants to do the challenge as well. So it gets that motivation, too. If you want to check it out, uh, it's uh, on my Instagram stories almost every day, Spain2323, and give it a shot. I think it might help. There's something about that, like visualizing it, that I think helps you squeeze it into a busy schedule. The commish has spoken. My name is Grant Wall, and my dilemma is getting my wife to not be so pedal to the metal all day long. Well... This is a tough follow-up to the last one because, well, first, I hope you don't consider her workouts part of putting pedal to the metal. I'd like to think those are separate. Maybe just a little more relaxing is what you're looking for. And um, I don't know that my husband urging me to put down work or otherwise would go over while I'm not a great relaxer myself. But if you made a plan in advance, maybe you wanted to have a nice dinner you cooked together or a movie you wanted to watch or a walk you wanted to take together... Something that she knows is on the schedule so she can use her time appropriately before and after and feel okay about taking that break with you. That might be the key. But knowing what she does and how important it is, she's probably going to be pedal to the metal for the foreseeable future. The commish has spoken. My guests this week are the married dynamic duo of Grant Wall and Dr. Celine Gounder. Uh, Celine is an infectious disease physician, internist, epidemiologist, filmmaker, and medical journalist who specializes in infectious disease and global health. She went to Princeton, Johns Hopkins, Bloomberg School of Public Health, and University of Washington School of Medicine. She practices part-time still, but then she hosts the podcast American Diagnosis and the podcast Epidemic, which is a weekly series on the science public health, and social impact of the pandemic. She was recently named to the Biden-Harris COVID Advisory Board for that transition. Grant Wall's a longtime sports journalist, spent 24 years at Sports Illustrated, where he was a senior writer, also formerly a correspondent for Fox Sports. He's the author of The Beckham Experiment and now the host of a twice-weekly soccer interview podcast called Football with Grant Wall. Recently had uh, the stars of Ted Lasso, Jason Sudeikis, and Brendan Hunt on. That's a fun one. 
Um, he also has a new podcast series coming out now over seven weeks called American Prodigy, the Freddie Adu story. Uh, so we talked about their very different backgrounds, how they met at Princeton, uh, the challenges of the last year or so in both the sports industry, him getting laid off and in public health, her job ramping up, how they've stayed mentally healthy, what it's like for Celine to be tabbed with helping President-elect Joe Biden get a grip on this pandemic, the fears of her working in a hospital during COVID for her and for him sending a loved one into that situation and all of the friends that she made throughout her medical career, uh, having to deal with not enough equipment and the fears and, and concerns of, of the early stages of the pandemic and, and how it's continued. I could have used another hour with them. I hope to have them back down the road because we had so much more to get to. Uh, but I think you guys will like this. That's what she said. I think I am becoming the podcast that couples come on together. This is a, this is a, a, a trend that I actually really appreciate and enjoy. I love uh, two very successful people who found each other because the dynamics there and the balance must be quite interesting at home. Um, I, I, I know it myself, but uh, but always great to talk to to other couples that are balancing, especially during the pandemic where uh, what may have felt like a perfectly sized home uh, suddenly closes in on you. Uh, I've never been more thankful that we bought a house just before everything started going down. Uh, but today I've got two very successful people, Grant Wall and Celine Gounder. And um, if you're a listener to this podcast because of sports, you likely know uh, Grant for years at, at SI. And, and if you're a listener because you love the commish from the Levitard show, then you certainly remember Celine Gounder's appearance on that show many months ago, early on in the pandemic. And we're going to get to all of it. But I want to start with um, how you became who you are and then how you became who you are together. So, um, Celine, you have a fascinating story as a child of two immigrants. And it's a cliched one because all the children of immigrants I've had on this podcast have been incredibly ambitious and hardworking and very successful. Um, is that is that something that feels right to you or more incidental? Is it feel like that was meant to be based on your growing up? Oh, there's no question. Um that my dad's trajectory in life um, in particular had a huge impact on who I am today, what my values are, what I decided to do. Um, my dad uh, was born in a rural uh, village in Southern India, um, uh, rice and sugar cane, cane farming area. And his um, he's really the, the first person from his family and from the village to go beyond the fifth grade in his studies. Um, he went on on scholarships for advanced studies, um, eventually going to the Indian Institute of Science, which is their uh, MIT, so to speak, in India, and then eventually coming to the U.S. for his PhD. And, you know, this was all on the merits of his um, academic work uh, on scholarship and you know, he did not come from a wealthy family. Um, to this day, uh, his oldest brother's house does not have a flush toilet, you know. Wow. Um, and so, it, you know, I was growing up very appreciative of how lucky I was um, to be born where I was born, have the advantages I had, um, you know, especially as a woman, um my life just would have been extremely different had I been born in that village in India. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, your your academic record is is unbelievable. It's Princeton, Johns Hopkins, University of Washington School of Medicine, um, 
all of your accomplishments. I could spend most of the podcast listing them off. Um, at what point did you realize you wanted to focus on on epidemiology or infectious disease, global health stuff? Yeah, I came around to that really in college. Um, and I will say my dad and I did not see eye to eye on everything. <laughs> in fact, a lot we did not see eye to eye on. And he wanted me to be the next Bill Gates. He wanted me to um, study engineering or computer science and then get an MBA and then start a company. You know, he thought, um, strongly believed that development of a country of people should be done through job creation. Um, and, you know, obviously, I think there that there's tremendous good to that, but I think there are many ways um, to attack issues of development and improving people's quality of life. And I think that's only one of them. And that was not the way that I really identified with, felt passionate about. And so I started college as an engineering major, but was also a pre-med at the same time. And mm, that um, seems easy. Yeah, that it was not easy. <laughs> um, and I, I will say it, Looking back, I really um, wish I hadn't had to do both, um, that I could have taken more social science classes, could have enjoyed just more of the other things that a college campus has to offer. Um, you know, but that that was what I did. And um, about halfway through college, convinced my dad that um, I could drop the engineering bit and really focus on a career in health. And I still wasn't really sure if I wanted to do epidemiology or clinical medicine, but I had some sense in general about public health and infectious diseases because I saw that as an area where you really were targeting um, people who were most vulnerable, most marginalized, um, you know, really among the sickest. And um, so that's, that's where I decided to focus. So the interesting thing about being someone who studies infectious diseases and epidemiology is, of course, there's plenty of work to be done in normal times. Mm -hmm. But the preparation is for a moment like this where your expertise and your life's work makes you um, the most necessary and the most helpful and, and the culmination of all of your goals of, of helping the public and people come together. And it was the worst possible time for all of that to come together in terms of people listening to the experts and wanting your expertise and caring whether you know what you're talking about and you spent your life working towards something. So we'll get to how the intersection of, of the, the American presidency and this epidemic and, or pandemic, I should say, and, uh, and everything comes together. But first I'm trying to figure out how Grant and you would have met at Princeton if you were in <laughs> class all the time and what class might cross over due to uh, requirements. <laughs> so let's get to Grant. Grant, uh, growing up, were you always a big sports guy? Oh, yeah. Uh, I grew up in Kansas City on the Kansas side, a uh, big fan of University of Kansas basketball, um, Kansas City Comets indoor soccer team, and those ended up being the two sports that uh, I ended up covering when I got to Sports Illustrated. But I decided in high school I wanted to write for Sports Illustrated and, wow. and did everything I could to pursue that. So you end up at Princeton, not too shabby. Uh, what is your major there? Are you? Or is it communications, journalism? Yeah, they didn't have a journalism degree. So um, I did political science and found a way to kind of do journalism within that. Uh, so 
everyone had to do a senior thesis as an undergrad, and I did mine on politics and soccer in Argentina. Lived there for three months, uh, had a really good experience. It kind of became my adopted country. Thankfully, Celine likes going there on vacation still. Uh, and, and that was because of your relationship with Bob Bradley, who was the Princeton coach, who later went to become the the U.S. men's national coach. Yeah, and he's the LAFC coach right now, coached the Egyptian national team in Swansea in the Premier League. Uh, Bob had a huge impact on me. I, I started covering his Princeton team as a freshman for the school paper, and he treated me like a professional journalist, which I really appreciated then and especially now and just in kind of marveling at how connections you make at a very early age you really do end up maintaining a lot of those really later in life so I'm still covering Bob uh, in my job now uh, a, a guy who was on that Princeton soccer team I became friends with Jesse Marsh is now coaching in Champions League for Salzburg in Austria and probably will become the U.S. coach someday so, yeah. It was, Are you breaking it was a really news on experience. the pod or is this just a guess? <laughs> <laughs> just a guess at this the point. Contract in the works. <laughs> um, okay. So you're, you're, it's, it's fascinating on this podcast. One of my favorite things is watching people's line from where they started to where they ended up. Yours is very direct, right? There are some people who are meandering for years before they happen upon the thing that makes sense. Yours was, I want to do this. All right, here's the things that are between me and doing it, and then you're doing it. So 24 years at Sports Illustrated, that's wild. Um, how did you guys meet then at Princeton? Celine? Okay, so um, she does not like sports. She <laughs> That's <laughs> amusing to everyone who knows us. Uh, she just doesn't watch it, not into it. And that was the case when we first met uh, in college. She was a junior, I was a senior. Um, but we do have common interests in other things. And, and she wasn't studying 24 hours a day. And so um, we were in the same eating club, which is a Princeton thing. Uh, it's basically a co-ed uh, sorority fraternity type situation where you eat your meals there. And so we got to know each other there. Um, and we did have common interests in in current events and movies and food. I mean, if I'm being honest, Celine, whose mother is French and an amazing cook, mm. like has introduced me to like what I didn't eat when I met her is insane when you look at what I eat and cook now. Um, but that's all her. And and so I, I do remember when we first started dating, she revealed to me that she had just turned 18 and she was like a junior in college and i was kind of like wait what and i was trying to figure that out because I, I knew your ages and i was like you're only a year apart in class but the ages are, are a couple years yeah right and and i was totally thrown i was glad she had actually just turned 18 and but like she had skipped <laughs> two years uh she had skipped two years of school and and i thought it was cool because most people i had met at that point who had skipped years of school were kind of not socially totally adjusted to be mm -hmm. honest and and she was and so that was just an interesting thing at the start yeah well but... it's like reverse that so academia is if you're very smart you get to be in in grades uh with people that are much older than you and in sports it's if you're very good we're going to hold you back so that you're the oldest person in your class <laughs> because we want to make sure that you have the most number of years before you're out you know in the in the pros um one of the things i love about uh, um 
Ivy Leagues, and which I did not take advantage of at the time, is that you're surrounded by other great, smart people. And that I presume because you were already at Princeton, you found it attractive and fascinating that she was brilliant and had skipped multiple grades and was only 18 and was a junior at Princeton versus... Or, or I suppose you could also be someone who thinks so highly of themselves and their status at Princeton that they that they're intimidated and don't want a woman who is an equal and a partner. But uh, it sounds like that didn't scare you away. No, she was awesome. That's why I was into her. Um, <laughs> and so you know, like it just kind of went from from there. Yeah. And I mean, you gotta. I guess it's interesting now because I've been to so many countries covering soccer since then, but like my first trip to Europe ever in my life was with Celine. And that was the summer after we met when she was working at the World Health Organization in Geneva. And uh, and we spent some time there. But yeah. I love having this history together where, when we had zero money yeah. and, and couldn't afford even to go out to eat in Geneva, which is a, an expensive city. <laughs> And in having that shared history. So, Celine, the question is then what attracted you to Grant, a, a guy who was wasting his brain on the folly of sport? <laughs> um, you know, I, I think we, as Grant said, we bonded over, um, I would say, shared values, an interest in current events. You know, we're both big readers of the New York Times and the New Yorker and, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and I think what we do also have in common is an understanding that whether it's in his case, sports or my case, um, medicine and public health, that there is something to be said for approaching these things in a, I don't know, I guess, multidisciplinary way. Um, And so, for example, his focus on politics and culture and sports um, really does parallel a lot of the work that I've been doing around, um, you know, why why it's important to understand anthropology and sociology and psychology as you um, develop um, public health programs and, and advance public health programs. So I think that, you know, in that respect, we have a similar sort of approach to, to problems like that. So I'm going to play the name game with you, even though I understand that, you know, not all epidemiologists hang out with each other, but you did work at WHO in, in Switzerland. Do you know Maria Van Kirkhoff, who's the COVID lead for WHO right now? She's the I know, woman that's on all the... Covers. Yeah, I know who she is. I don't hmm. know her personally. She's a friend of mine. She's my, my good friend from Cornell's uh, sister-in-law. So it's been fascinating to see her from the beginning when she's on all the coverage to now when the relationship with who is sort of fraught and and her job becomes more and more difficult the the less people are listening i suppose um okay so you guys uh do you have any great dramatic stories of breaking up and getting back together or was this just like hey we like each other i guess we'll just hang out for the rest of our lives i will say this the and Celine may or may not remember this like i had applied for a fulbright scholarship to go to argentina the year after we met and that would have involved living there for a year and I don't know if we would have stayed together we might have if I had gotten it but I'm very happy that I failed to get <laughs> that Fulbright and we stayed together okay so no dramatic uh, uh again the through line Grant you know what you uh your aim is and then I guess you stick to it which is uh it's admirable um, she did she did propose to me by the way <laughs> really okay I want to hear this story <laughs> Well, um, let's see. After 
college, uh, we did do the long distance thing for a little while. I moved down to D.C., worked in D.C. for a year, then went to Hopkins for public health school in Baltimore. Um, and that was a two-year program. And for the second year of that, I was actually splitting my time um, between New York with Grant, uh, some time on campus in Baltimore, but also a big chunk of time in Brazil doing um, my master's thesis, thesis work in Brazil. And then at the end of that is when I decided to go to medical school and medical school was going to be in Seattle uh, at the University of Washington. And, you know, I kind of felt like if I'm going to ask him to move across the country with me, I should be the one, you know, proposing and, and putting myself out there. So did you do it in a romantic way? Did you set it up fancy? Well, I had a plan. Um, we, what was the name of the chef, Grant? I forget the guy's Matthew name. Matthew Kenny. Yeah, Matthew Kenny. So he was like a big chef in New York at the time. And our favorite restaurant of his was called Matthew's, but he had opened some other, like, I would say more trendy, themey restaurants after uh, Matthew's. Um, and what was the name? I'm forgetting now the name of the restaurant. It had a Bolshevik theme. It was this yeah. weird thing where, like, I informed her she had made this reservation and had an engagement ring for me already. And I informed her that they had this long communal table because of the Bolshevik theme. And at that point, she <laughs> thought to herself, maybe I shouldn't propose in front of a, like, literally sit sitting next right. to people we don't know. So you waited well, till the week after at Benihana, because then at least there would be there would be flames if everyone else was involved. Well, it's funny that you mentioned flames because Grant did set his menu on fire at that dinner. Oh, okay, um, good. <laughs> That's a side story, but yes. <laughs> um. Yeah. Uh, no. Uh, it was actually later that night we got back, and um, the quote engagement ring was a silver band with the proposal inscribed on the inside. And um, I basically had him fish it out of my drawer as a, you know, surprise <laughs> present. And uh, he read the inscription and he said, yes. Aw, I like that. Very sweet. Now, is this a Lindsey Vaughn PK Subban thing where then you re repeated the gesture by proposing on your own later? Or was this a one-time deal? It's interesting because I realized we had been together for five years by the time she uh, proposed to me. And I, I swear I was in the process on my end on this. <laughs> you got to believe me. Um, and she beat me to it. But I, I do think she's like, I, I, we, I did propose to her on a houseboat in India, in Kerala, in 2006, on our first trip together to India and really beautiful uh, setting that day. Um, and she said yes, but I got the feeling that maybe she felt like I didn't do enough there. Was, was there a accurate? ring? There was not a ring, I think. <laughs> it's not about the, the quality of the ring, but I do think there's the belief that it has been planned for versus spontaneous that makes it feel like a lifelong decision has been thought about and made versus this is a nice moment. Let's make this even better. <laughs> this is probably true. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So you end up uh, getting married and uh, you're both doing uh, work that is um, time consuming and stressful and high profile. 
how does that balance go for the majority? Now, now we're looking at, you know, how long have you been married? So we got married in 2001. Okay. Um, in Seattle. And okay. So almost 20 years of, and most of yeah. that you're working at SI um, until very recently. And you're uh, presumably saving the world in various ways. Um, how does that go in terms of life and schedules and how is that disrupted by the pandemic? Yeah. I mean, like over the years we had some times when we just didn't spend enough time in the same place together. And we actually literally started counting day, the number of days in a year and, and limiting the amount of days in a year that we were apart. And that was a hard and fast rule. And that remains the case. Obviously this year is totally different, but you know, we have a rule that we can't be apart more than 25% of the year. Because it's like Hollywood stars who pick their movies based on how the number of days <laughs> they're allowed to be apart. <laughs> and and so in 2010, like we counted the days, I think we were apart 50% of the year. That was a oh, World wow. Cup year for me in South Africa. Celine was doing work all over the world. And we just realized how important it was to be in the same place. So um, that's a big part of it. This year has been totally different in the sense we've been together all year. Uh, but just the <laughs> amount of stress that Celine has been under, I mean, she's prepared for this situation, this pandemic this year for her entire career. Like uh, our friend Alexi Lawless said, this is her World Cup, which is probably underestimating. Yeah, I would say like, even more so. What? Yeah, if she was coaching in it or <laughs> if she was right. the star and it was going to be her only time where the stars aligned and she could actually play in it. <laughs> but, you know, the fact that she's still practicing part-time at Bellevue Hospital here in New York, in including during March and April when things were at their worst in New York City, uh, that she's done a twice-weekly ep you know, epidemic podcast episode or series, which has been incredible. Uh, and I know how much work goes into that because I see it uh, to all of the media stuff she's done as a CNN contributor. And now that she's on the president-elect's advisory board, she's not just CNN now, she's on TV all the time. So my job this year, more than anything, has been to make sure she eats, to cook for <laughs> her, to make sure she sleeps, to do everything around the house so that she doesn't have to do any of that stuff. And I mean, honestly, I've sort of known this for a while. I remember at the TED Med conference, they made us wear these things around our neck with like name tags, but like what what we do. And I, I put something to the effect of like, my main function is to make sure my wife is able to do what she does because it impacts a heck of a lot more people than what I do. Yeah. Celine, uh, so, you know, the fond memories of that year where you didn't see each other all the time. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> what's it been like for you? Because um, as, as a, as a, a woman who is in a uh, demanding field and who works a lot, you can have the most uh, evolved and, and progressive husband and still these deeply rooted ideas of who should make more money or who should be the focus of the household or who should be catered to in terms of the value of their job. And they kind of, they, they dig their way in, even though you both have, are, are on the same page. Is it difficult at all for you? to have Grant, who's very successful and smart and accomplished in his own right, um, have to make sacrifices to, to, to supplement your work, even if it's the right decision? 
I don't know that I would say he's had to make sacrifices. I mean, he's he's been able to pursue very much the career he wanted to. Um, I think the biggest sacrifice perhaps that he's had to make was moving around with me. Um, but I don't know if you would totally call that a sacrifice exactly. I mean, some of that created new opportunities like – when we moved to South Africa, he took a sabbatical from his job at Sports Illustrated and he wrote his first book. Um, you know, and I think that was a really fun year of living together in South Africa um, and, you know, getting to do something totally different. So I don't, I don't know that I would, I don't, I don't know what you would say, Grant, but I don't know that I would say you've had to make sacrifices in your job. Not necessarily. I, I was lucky to have a job where I could move to Seattle and Boston and Baltimore and that would give me a sabbatical to go live in South Africa. Celine was working for a year at the, the giant hospital in Soweto during basically the worst of the HIV crisis there. And, um, and just to be able to be there with her for that was great. And it did give me the opportunity. I sat down for three months and wrote my first book. Um, and so that's been helpful. I, I think Sarah's question, maybe the one way to answer it would be for a long time, I was probably paid more to do what I did than Celine was to do what she's done. Even though our values to society are different than that mm -hmm. and so we have grappled a little bit just it's it's been sort of a teamwork thing because celine started her own nonprofit production company a couple years ago when she started doing her podcasts and we were dipping into our own pocket to do that she's now gotten enough donations for that to be sustainable but then when i end up losing my job at Sports Illustrated this year, which was a stressful situation, Celine, right after that, gets this really big donation to her nonprofit. And so it, it's almost like good karma in a sense, right. like from, from that perspective where things worked out. And and I'm certainly a lot more stable now in what I'm doing work-wise and, and, and doing just fine. But for a long time, just from a pure financial perspective, I kind of supported what she was doing and then that flipped yeah. in, in the span of like a week this yeah. year that's what she said so let's talk about the si thing it was pretty public because uh you know you're you were critical of sports illustrated's handling of its talent and its and its staff during the pandemic their expectation that not only would we um expect you to get paid less during this which is understandable but that in perpetuity, for for as long as you would know, uh, your your salary would change and their expectations would be different. Um, so you lose your job, and then not only that, but the guy in charge decides to email the company, essentially using you as an example of what not to do, or someone being ungrateful, or someone handling things wrong. Um, take me to that moment where you're already mourning that this job that you spent your life working towards and had spent a quarter century doing. Um, is gone, but also that, did you see that email coming? Was there any warning that this would become a sort of public discussion around you? The only thing that's tough about this is I literally am not allowed to say much ah. publicly at this oh. point. Okay. Um, but, you know, what I would say is, is that like moving forward, 
we have a better relationship with the the new leadership um, of Sports Illustrated and, and the operator, uh, which is called Maven. And we ended up reaching kind of a detente, which at least allows me to go out, you know, in a good way. I'm going to write three stories, long form stories for Sports Illustrated between now and in April. I'm really proud of of my time there. It's literally the only place I've ever worked full time still. Yeah. And um, and when I look back at, at some of the things that I have done there, I'm I feel good about that. You know, I feel good about doing the first LeBron James cover that we did in 2002 and uh, and covering three U.S. Women's World Cup winning tournaments and being a part of like 99 felt like history, but so mm. did 2015 and, and 2019. And covering the U.S. men to get to the quarterfinals of the World Cup in 2002. Um, so that was all I ever wanted in as a kid in high school was to write for Sports Illustrated. I got that desire from I got had a subscription as a gift from my parents for Christmas when I was eight years old I read it cover to cover every week decided that's all I, I want to do once I realized I wasn't going to be a professional athlete mm -hmm. and then did it and and so as crazy as things got in in early 2020 um like I feel good about kind of where things are headed now in yeah. terms of that relationship. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm going to end up working full time for Sports Illustrated again. And I'm doing a lot of other fun stuff in the podcast space uh, and have hopefully some announcements coming here soon. But like this pandemic's a really bad job market as well. Yeah. So I've had to sort of accept the fact that even though I, I think my record is really good, that you know, ESPN was laying off people, mm -hmm. you know, the athletic was laying off people. And so it's, it's a crazy time. Well, SI is a destination in, in the same way that ESPN is. A lot of people get there and that they feel is the top. It's where they want to want to be and, and be forever. There's a freedom sometimes for people who are on the sort of hamster wheel of success at any of those places. When it ends, even if it's not what they want, um, they suddenly have the opportunity to, to reset and figure out how they want to spend their time, how much work they were doing, how much time they were spent doing that work, whether it's still satisfying or whether it was the idea of still being a part of that great place. Um, has it felt like in the last couple months, even though you are still able to write some more pieces for SI and, and in theory go out the way you want or maybe be available for freelance in the future, um, to look out into the landscape and say, this is what I actually want to do with my time? Yeah. I mean, it has been liberating. And I mean, this... Freddie Adu podcast series became a full-time job for me over the last four months. And I had the time to do it and do it really well. I mean, this is, I, I'm more proud of this podcast series than I am of any magazine story or podcast series I've done before. And I don't think the hamster wheel aspect of the current media situation actually would have allowed me mm -hmm. the time to do this project. And so I just want to be associated Great. with quality. Yeah. And it, it gets harder and harder as time goes on to have the time to do those sorts of things. And so I do realize that in the future, I think whatever I'm doing has to be tied to subscriptions. Like soccer in America even now is not a clicks driven 
advertising driven sport, like maybe during world cups, but not typically. And I need to be associated with something that incentivizes quality. Absolutely. Uh, And so that probably is, you know, some sort of subscription type. That makes sense. Um, it's nice though, to be able to pivot to something and then have the time to give. And, and that's one of the biggest things in our industry, I think is these big ideas and, and the want to do something great. And then the amount of time you have to slip it in between all the other stuff you're doing, it, it ends up creating, um, the, it, it, it dictates what kind of content you make, not just in quality, but like whether it's long form or quick or how long you have to edit it and all that other stuff. Um, Celine, obviously, uh, the pandemic quite different for you in terms of result, but still turns your your world upside down. Something that you've been preparing for and that you've been uh, qualified to handle, but when it actually hits, um, and you, I assume, are one of the first to realize that um, this White House essentially uh, discarded and didn't use in any way the pandemic response plan that was given to them in case of this happening. Um, Take us way back to the very beginning, maybe February, March, when we realized this is going to be um, global and serious, uh, what your initial expectation was for how you might be a part of handling it and reacting to it. Well, I feel like the first reports came out in December that I was reading, and I remember I was on service beginning of January. In fact, I I generally like to be um, on service at the hospital over New Year's. There's something... um, I don't know, like it it helps put things into context. I guess it's my version of a New Year's resolution of just, you know, being appreciative of what you have and um, understanding that other people are in the hospital over New Year's and, you know. Um, And so I was on service at that time. And I remember talking to my residents about this and pulling some of the, you know, papers, reports about it and saying, this is something we're going to have to worry about. And they kind of rolled their eyes at me and were like, oh, this is some esoteric, whatever. We're never going to have to worry about this. Um, And, you know, it it is frustrating when you can see something coming, you know, and I, I don't blame my residents, you know, they're still very green in medicine. They're just, you know, learning, but more broadly, to see something coming and no one's doing anything about it. Um, I mean, at least that's what it felt like. And I remember going on um, CNN, I was on with Brooke Baldwin and saying something about what I could see coming. And she, after, after the segment, she kind of looked at me like, really? (laughs) She was Mm -hmm. sort of like, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, really startled by, I guess this is the way I would describe it, but what I, by what I said, Um, and then afterwards I got a message from somebody over Twitter of like, I can't believe you just said that on national television. And I was like, this is what's coming. Um, and I don't necessarily enjoy in the end being right about that. Um, I mean, I think this was probably in February that this might've happened. Um, and I guess, I do wish that all of the plans that had been put in place by the prior administration um, had stuck. I mean, part of the reason that they put those plans in place after Ebola was realizing the need for that, that this was going to be something that we were going to face in different forms over and over again, and that we needed to be better prepared. Um, And I certainly hope that moving forward, we um, do 
put ourselves in a position after this pandemic is over to be more resilient, more responsive, more proactive, because there will be a next time. So it's, um, I cannot imagine the frustration of putting together um, your life's work and, and pouring yourself into something as important as a pandemic preparedness, um, you know, uh, kit or document or, or plan or whatever it is, and then have it just be completely disregarded and ignored. And that feels like um, sort of a theme of this current administration is to take things that people worked very hard to come up with and, and destroy them, sometimes purely for the sake of doing so. Um, but in this case, it has such an incredible toll on the country and the world. So as you are starting to understand the combination of the seriousness of the virus and the lack of um, seriousness in terms of the approach from our government early on, um, how does that strike you? And at that point, could you have had any idea it would become as severe as it is now in terms of how those two things um, kind of resulted in where we still are now? Well, what I would say is um, if you look back um, in history, so for example, I mean, the most recent um, epidemics, pandemics, well, epidemics, uh, you had Zika, but before that you had Ebola. And um, there were a lot of commonalities with Ebola in terms of politicization. Um, That's very much what we saw in West Africa. Some of the countries there that were affected were... Uh, going through their own presidential elections. um, And unfortunately, much of the response on the ground did get politicized. You had people wearing the t-shirts of the Ghanaian president um, and doing health education. I mean, it would be like somebody wearing a MAGA hat or a Biden-Harris campaign t-shirt coming to your door and saying you should wear a mask or you should do X, Y, Z. You know, it just doesn't go over well. Um, And so unfortunately, that is what happened during the Ebola um, epidemic. And so, and there were a lot of conspiracy theories. They had similar conversations about Ebola is not real. Ebola is a hoax. Mm. Um, You know, it's a lot of the same language that we heard about coronavirus um, this time around. And so I guess I I wasn't surprised. Um, You know, to me, this was really predictable that that was how it was going to play out, sadly. Let's go back to that Levitard interview, which is when I first heard that Grant had a badass wife. Um, you know, he's apparently hiding you and or you were focusing on important things like uh, your work. But um, you got really emotional during that interview with them. And um, one of the things that I think has been so difficult about the pandemic is um, how distant the rest of America feels from the nurses and doctors that are actually dealing with it. Um, if you don't have a family member who has it, or if you yourself have not been hospitalized with it, the idea of just stay home is how you stop this feels weird. Uh, why? What's happening? Right. And we're not seeing enough images about it. So it's felt like th- that was the first time uh, there was this interruption into my world of somebody who was firsthand um, being emotionally affected by what you were seeing what was the response to that? Because I imagine you're doing all sorts of other television and radio, but this is a totally different world that you've just walked into and, and shared how you were feeling with. Yeah. And, and what had happened was um, they were just asking me about, you know, what was going on in the hospital and, you know, what, what gave me hope? That was the question. And that morning I had 
been on Facebook. Um, and it was literally, my feed was full of pictures of my friends from medical school, from residency, from training, all of them um, getting ready to work at the hospital. Uh, a lot of them concerned about whether they had enough personal protective equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, here at Bellevue, we'd already had some of our colleagues, nurses, for example, who had been intubated in front of the rest of us, you know, where they put a tube down your throat and put you on a ventilator. Um, and, you know, to, to realize that all these people you've known for years that you really care about are, I mean, it's like you're all going off to war unprotected. I mean, that's what it felt like. Yeah. Um, it was, it, I was scary. And some people after that interview, um, reached out. Um, there was one guy in particular who uh, was a hospice nurse in Arkansas. And he literally picked up and moved to New York to work here um, and care for patients because he felt like um, there was something he could do. Uh, this is a guy who would previously served in the military to give you some, you know, uh, context and and a sense of his idea about service. Um, You know, and that was, you you talk about giving you hope. I mean, that that, those are the kinds of people that really do give me hope, the people who step up in a moment like that. And that uh, nurse is on your podcast epidemic, if people want to check out that story, right? Yes, yes. That was um, our just before Thanksgiving episode. Um, Yeah, and just amazing story. I mean, he also reconnected with... um, I think it was an old high school girlfriend um, and they've gotten back together over the course of this. I mean, there's wow. some pretty amazing things about right, that's a good tease for that episode. Yeah. That <laughs> It's got everything. Um, Grant, for you, you're not only do you obviously have your wife going in potentially not as protected as you'd like, but her friends and, and all sorts of friends, I imagine that you now know through this, how do you, um, how do you stay mentally together. Uh, It's tough enough for those of us who are keeping a bit of a distance, trying to stay educated, but also not filling ourselves with information that's just going to make us um, sad and or scared. You can't avoid it. It's right in front of you. It's been, everyone's had a crazy year, right? Uh, Like, and, and we certainly have had a crazy year here, you know, um, for me, that moment on Lebetard's show with Celine really threw me because Celine does not emote that way ever. And, and she's not a sports her, show. And, and she's like, yeah. And, and I, I interned with Miami Herald and worked with Dan back in the day. And so like, I, I know what a good interviewer Dan is. Um, and the question he asked just took things in a, in a way with Celine that I, I did not expect here. Like here's someone I know better than anybody who, you know, she went in to an Ebola zone for two months as an unpaid volunteer and never had an emotional situation response like that one. Mm-hmm. And it was crazy at that time as things got bad here in New York and we, in New York city, we lost 23,000 people. Mm-hmm to COVID and to not have the protective gear to protect the, the medical people on the front lines was crazy. And, and Celine had better protective gear in Guinea in West Africa for Ebola than she did in New York city. Mm-hmm. And so there was 
uh, for me, this mix of pride, but also anger mm -hmm. that she and other medical professionals were being put in harm's way and and still doing what they did in such a heroic way, not just in New York City, but you know, all over the place now in the US and, and around the world. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's been a, a crazy year. I lost my job, which I worried made things tough on her. Um, lost my dad this, this summer, right after losing my mom last summer. Mm -hmm. Celine was very supportive of all of that, but there was a frustration that like a lot of other people in this country, I couldn't go visit my dad who I'd gone to see in Arizona once a month for a long time. And I did not see him for seven months until the very end and he couldn't talk to me. Yeah. So like just all of that um, has, has made this a, a really difficult year. And it's amazing to me that Celine's been able to be supportive of me going through all of this stuff herself and kind of remarkable, I think, that many years down the line, we will look back on 2020 and feel a real sense of pride that we got through this. Yeah. I just said that to all someone. Together, and all of us. Like how it feels in the moment, assuming everyone that, that is closest to you um, survives and, and is okay down the road, there will be this feeling of like the world's worst bachelor date where they send you like off somewhere that's really high stress so that you bond over it. Like the same yeah. thing that happens in war, like fraternities, uh, you know, you go through something <laughs> awful together and then you feel closer. Um, it's going to take a while to look back at it and recognize <laughs> that those bonds were made or, or that for parents, that time that they had with kids or for weirdos like me, the fact that I spent hours of every day with my dogs when, you know, when they're gone, it will be like, Oh, that one year where I spent every second with them. Um, Celine, I, um, uh, I cannot imagine the anger and frustration over the course of the last however many months, um, because usually other people's ignorance or refusal to follow the rules affects mostly them. Occasionally, it intersects with the lives with others if they're doing stupid things or dangerous things. But for the most part, if everybody else wants to be a conspiracy theorist who's anti-intellectual, anti-science, it mostly is going to affect their ability to take care of themselves. And big picture, if you actually looked at it, it probably affects, you know, our, our government's budget and our cost of health care and everything else when people are, you know, ignorant to things. But on, on a personal level, for you especially, and for the rest of us who find ourselves still at home, unable to do the things that we would normally do because we can't get a grasp of this and, and stop the spread, this is the most other people's ignorance has affected the rest of us. And for you, it's more so because your actual safety and ability to live is affected by people deciding that PPP is unimportant or PPE is unimportant, um, that making decisions for nurses and doctors should be prioritized over getting Big Ten football back, uh, any number of things. So how in the world are you not just throwing things at the wall every day? Or do you have a special room for that? Um, so you mentioned your dogs. My dogs have been amazing through all of this. Uh, this guy here is a little <laughs> needy. Um, well, he's been there the whole time without moving. So it seems to be his spot. <laughs> yeah. Like when I get on TV, like literally if I don't put them behind the door, they're like, you know, crawling, trying to get in my lap. Um, so that has definitely helped <laughs> during this stretch. Um, 
Yeah, I, I I try not to think about it in those terms just because it makes me so overwhelmingly sad. Um, and I also really understand where people are coming from. You know, I have the fortunate, you know, privilege um, opportunity to do something. And I, I tend to cope by problem solving. That's my coping mechanism. So it's very well suited to being a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that makes me feel better, I guess, when I am doing something proactive to take action, to fix the problem. But not everybody has the right toolkit for that, right? Like Grant, as a journalist, a sports journalist, his skills are not necessarily going to be the skills to fix the pandemic. Yeah. Um, He'll write about it in five years and it'll be really great. It'll be a good reflection. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, um, but in the moment, right, like you feel like the world is coming to an end and you don't, you feel helpless. You don't feel like there's anything you can do. And um, it's kind of like, I don't know, when you're depressed and you have that big tub of chocolate ice cream in front of the TV, <laughs> right? Like, I think a lot of people are having that moment of, I feel helpless. I feel powerless. This is horrible. The world is ending. I just want to wallow with my big tub of ice cream. And I don't think, I think that's human. Um, and so I think you have to start there and understand what people are feeling um, and not necessarily be judgmental of that, you know, understand where they're coming from. I usually believe in the idea of knowledge is power, but there's also an equally powerful cliche of ignorance is bliss. And I'm sort of wavering between the two throughout this, because I remember very early on, I saw an expert mention something about, well, we could, you know, probably still be doing what we're doing now here in March and October. And I was like, October, what? And I was so stressed out by it that I was like, all right, I'm going to take in the information that I need and try to avoid intentionally seeking out long-term prognosis. I'm much better at how do I get through this day in front of me or maybe this week? What do I have going on this week that I need to handle? Um, I say this almost every podcast and I think 2020 is the most important year for it all. Tom Petty, most things I worry about never happen anyway. So why would I put something in front of me that might not happen so that I can add it to my list of worries? Instead, I'm going to deal with directly in front of me and the information that I need. You do not have the benefit of doing that. And not only do you not have the benefit of ignoring those things, but you know the things and you're the one who's going to tell us that three years from now, we're still not going to go to rock concerts. Like, how do you, how, how are you just a knowledge is power all the time person? Um, I, I think first and foremost, humans are emotional. I think we like to think of ourselves as, you know, big brainy, smart, um, but I think we are emotional above all. Um, but you know, how do I, how do I cope with it myself? I mean, honestly, I don't have time to think that far ahead in terms of my personal life. Um, yes, I might be thinking about the pandemic and where we are and that in six months, a year, but, um, I, I just have so much to try to stay on top of to get done every day. It's literally, a marathon from the time, you know, I get up to the time I go to bed. I, I don't really have time to think about the personal side of it. Right. Um, so I have a couple quick questions uh, as, as an expert directly in front of me. Um, the 15 minute thing. 
I keep feeling like I'm conflicted on the idea. If there's a if there's an outbreak, people are only contract tracing people who suspend at least 15 minutes with someone. But we also were told that if you walk by someone on the street of the grocery store, you know, be careful. So is that more? It's just more likely in 15 minutes. And if someone happened to cough a big old COVID loogie into your face down the street, it would still infect you. But for the most part, we don't have the ability to contact trace to every passing person. So we start with the most likely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's intensity of exposure. So if you're indoors around somebody who has coronavirus and is infectious, you're going to be more likely to get infected. The longer you're around that person, the more intense your exposure is going to be. So it's it's a way of sort of um, prioritizing who to do the contact tracing right. You know, around. That's what I thought. Um, it wasn't the idea that you couldn't get it unless uh, the, the way people were setting that up was, I think, confusing to people and and frustrating. Um, even you know, at, at at a at a job, if if there's exposure, people don't understand why is that the cutoff point. Um, the long haulers, as as a as a doctor, and as so little information is known now, um, that I think. It doesn't scare me more than anything because I understand that people who are at risk could die immediately. But the idea that people could, um, for months now, seven, eight months, have these these lasting effects, um, is is the belief around that now that it could be the same as as those um, chronic fatigue syndrome or or other diseases where it's just you you then have it for life. Your your immune system and and your neurological system has been compromised. Or is there a hope that there are cures that will be eventually found for the long hauler stuff? We don't know because um, there's still so much we don't know about coronavirus. I mean, really, we've only been able to study this for less than a year. So we don't know what it looks like uh, five years after an infection. Um, there does seem to be an autoimmune disease that is triggered by the infection. In fact, we think that a lot of autoimmune diseases are triggered by infections. We just don't always know what the infection is. Um, and so will the long haulers need the same kinds of medications that you treat somebody who has, say, lupus with, perhaps? Um, and, and that's something we just don't really know yet. You know, will these diseases get better on their own? Um, will they, you know, have flare-ups or some low-level chronic condition. We don't know. Hmm. Your colleagues or friends who have been infected, are they afraid of, of, of that? Is that, does that plague them? Because I, I know, I think one study said one third of um, COVID positive people had an, a, a new uh, anxiety or depression or insomnia. And it's hard to separate that from just what the hell's going on in the world, but it was linked directly to their infection. Um, so how do you separate the the actual concern over what could happen to you down the road, even if you're not feeling it yet, versus uh, what you're actually experiencing? There's just so much uncertainty around it. I would think that that would be the hardest part about it. Yeah, and I think everybody's going to be different. I can only speak for my friends who've had it, um, and I think other people will feel differently. But they also just seem so overwhelmed with work, honestly, <laughs> right now. That I don't think they're thinking beyond that. Um, you know, they they feel like, well, I've got it. I got better, thank God. Um, and you know, back to work. And hmm. you know, that's that's been their experience. Um, so they they were among the lucky ones, I guess. 
Uh, quickly, I want to hear about this transition team. It's 13 members, scientists and doctors that are advising on controlling the virus. Um, what is your role? Is your role in, in messaging? Is it in action? Is it um, what what's your main focus? So um, the 13 member advisory board is actually um, in addition to a much, much larger transition team. Um, and the transition team has subgroups that, um, you know, are, are focused on each of the different agencies um, in the administration. Um, so there's a, actually quite a number of people working on transition planning. Um, but our advice is really to advise the transition team and the president and vice presidents elect on some of the plans that had already been drawn up um, to do some additional research on specific questions for them and um, you know, to pitch in and help wherever else they might need. Okay, so we're months after that Levitard interview. So now I have to ask you again, uh, what gives you hope? Well, you know, we, we've made some remarkable progress in terms of the science. Um, you know, we have vaccines that we believe will, before too long, get emergency use authorizations from the FDA. Um, we've learned a lot about transmission. Masks do work to protect you and to protect others. Um, so we have some effective tools now. Um, you know, the question is, will we use them? And can we use them um, to have the most impact possible? Um, and I hope we will. The vaccine, are you going to be part of decision making on where it is first um, used, where it's rolled out, how it's acquired by people, all that stuff? We'll certainly have um, the advisory board will certainly um, be providing some input, um, but we're not necessarily the final decision makers on that. The CDC um, came out with some initial recommendations just in the last day about who, who should be prioritized. But I, I think it's important to remember that the guidance on this is very likely to change over time as we learn more about the vaccines. So right now we know the vaccines, based on the data that's been reported, they appear to be safe and effective, but effective in preventing severe disease in the person who receives the vaccination. We don't yet know if these vaccines prevent transmission. So we cannot answer the question of whether these vaccines will induce herd immunity. We, we hope they will, but we won't know that until we have the opportunity to study that. And so just like the guidance around masks changed over time because we were learning about the effectiveness of masks for this disease because the supply of masks changed also over time, you'll, you'll see a similar shift over time in terms of who is prioritized for the vaccines. And I think people just need to understand that we learn and we adapt, and that's how science works. The vaccine provides a lot of hope. A new administration that maybe takes it more seriously provides a lot of hope. But I also see a lot of people sort of, there's the vaccine, you know, fingers crossed about some event that they're planning on going to in the near future. That feels a little uh, premature to me, right? Uh, we, we shouldn't be really planning on things drastically changing in the very near future. You know, I'm hopeful, but I think we just need to wait and see, take it one day at a time and, um, you know, just follow the science. We'll learn, you know, a bit at a time and um, just try to be as flexible and adaptable. I think that is the, the key in this moment. That's what she said. 
So not surprisingly, uh, Selena had to hop off. I, I, I took up too much of her time and she could be saving the world. So Grant alone is, uh, is the one who has to do the thing that nobody expects, but everybody gets. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Number one, your Desert Island album. You can only have one. Oh, wow. Um, Pearl Jam, Alive. Oh, nice. Ten. Ten, Ten is the album, yes. but yeah, that works. That's a great one. Uh, to what habit or quality do you think it's contributed most to your success? Um, curiosity. Three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Um, not reporting on corruption in soccer as early as I should have, including in our neck of the woods here. I loved reading that you you at one point had a bid to replace Sepp Blatter. Like, I do not do a ton of <laughs> soccer, but I remember that I was like, that guy. And I wrote a whole story about what a he was and how like original plans were to have women wear short shorts and low cut tops to play soccer. That was his big plan to increase what a um, I'm sorry that you did not get the requisite defense from a federation to make that bid happen because <laughs> literally anyone would have been better than that guy. Um, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? With my best friend in college playing basketball. It seems like it's always your best friends, at least. Often. Or basketball. Basketball. There's already a lot of <laughs> bows being thrown, so sometimes it just feels like the fist makes sense as a follow-up. Um, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Mm. Um, hmm. You know, Diego Maradona just died. Uh, Pelé. I, I would like to see what it's like to be someone who you could go anywhere in the world and someone would get a smile on their face seeing you because they recognize you, but you also stand for something positive to them. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, number six, the most embarrassed you've ever been. <laughs> um, in college, during orientation week, so it was before I met Celine, I got hypnotized in front of the entire freshman class and... <laughs> uh, and fell for it, I guess, and was told that I did a, a kind of spider dance on stage in front of everybody. And that's how everyone in the freshman class first wow. saw me. I'm always amazed by that. Were you shocked to discover that it worked? Yes. Like you I you mean, went up there like, nice try guy, and then all of a sudden you're a spider? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was like a, a, a finger snap. Yeah. And then I did this ridiculous spider dance. Imagine how, I mean, those people wield a power that could be used for great evil <laughs> i mean that in a true way like in fact it is, it is just, kind of scary but it someone sort of, of has to, to be willing i would imagine like it's not like they could walk down the street and snap in someone's face and then steal their wallet yeah i mean like and, and if i had like focused focus focus to say i'm not going to right you could you know, have fought it off this, then i probably could have that's maybe. wild that's crazy uh number seven what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve um Oh, let's see. Uh, I'm probably in some ways too nice and say yes to too many things. Mm, learning how to say no. I have a whole podcast about that. I'll send it to you. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, number eight, if you could be commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Um, oh, wow. 
Spend more time outside. Take a walk every day. Hmm. That's a good one. Make you happier. Yeah. We've been getting a lot of be nice and wear a mask. So I like the switch up on, on that <laughs> one. Too. Uh, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Oh, man. Uh, tornado warning, five years old, Kansas City area, under a bench with my brother thinking that our house was going to just blow away. Mm, that's, that's, that's pretty scary. Um, I assume it did not. It did not. So I got used to tornado warnings as I got older <laughs> just, growing up. Just that campus. first one was scary. <laughs> uh, number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Uh, kind, um, hardworking, fun. Those are good ones. Uh, and who should I have on this podcast? It could be anyone who does anything that's interesting. You've had some really good people on your podcast. Um, I would suggest, I just had them on my podcast, uh, Jason Sudeikis and, and Brendan Hunt from Ted Lasso, which for me has been the this joyous mm -hmm. thing to watch in a sort of unexpected way in in 2020 in this brutal year mm -hmm. uh it's made me laugh but also took me to some places i i wasn't expecting to go and and these guys were really cool to, to talk to about sort of how they approached it. It's a really fun show with a lot of hope. And that's kind of, I think we're all looking for the heart in the shows. That's why Shit's Creek was such a hit. Really funny, but had so much heart in it. Um, that's why I'm watching Gilmore Girls all the way through mm -hmm. again, because I just need the <laughs> nostalgia and the heart of, uh, of Stars Hollow. Um, well, you know, I look forward to you sending me their emails so that I can have them on the podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, thanks so much for doing this. I know you both are very busy and we could have talked for hours. Um, apologize to, to your wife for me manipulating, manipulating, uh, monopolizing her time uh, on a podcast that was not uh, immediately changing the world. No, thanks so much <laughs> for having us on. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week... People who post a video of their kid's wobbly-ass tooth about to fall out. Or just a photo of the gaping hole where said tooth resided up until about a minute before. Is this my weirdest rant yet? Probably. Am I completely right about this, though? Absolutely. Because what of you, anyone, there isn't a single one of you that could say that you do not get the willies watching a kid nudge around one of those wobbly fangs. Those gross little icicle things of flesh just clinging onto the dangling denticle. One day if I snap, it's probably gonna be about this. I don't need to see the moment that that kid's baby tooth rips out, and I don't need to see the bloody hole where the new tooth is gonna come in. Maybe a week or so later, a photo of a little gap tooth smile. That's cute, sure, but let's clean up the blood first, okay? All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. We have more than enough pictures and videos of your kids we do not need them bleeding from the face as an unsteady incisor makes its exit. Also, as an aside, maybe less kid pics and more dog pics. Okay, there, I fixed it. Don't forget to go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. Five stars, of course. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.